Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Joel Clark for another episode of Wusha Workshop. Today we're going to be talking about the movie Brave Archer. This is a 1977 film directed by Chang Che. It's a little different than a lot of Chang Che f- films. I don't know, I don't know how, uh, if, if you feel like you have a handle on them yet, Joel, but this one probably struck you as a little bit different from films like The One-Armed Swordsman and maybe some of the others that we've seen by him. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so I guess before we get into this one, and I should say this is a, uh, this is a, a part of a trilogy. There are th- there, it's actually more than a trilogy, but, but there's, there's uh, Brave Archers 1 through 3, and then there's Brave Archer and his mate, which gets into the next story. But we're going to just be focused on Brave Archer 1 through 3, which deals with the, uh, the first book of, of, the, of the Condor Heroes trilogy, which is Legend of Condor Heroes. So, uh, Joel, what, what was your reaction to this movie? Because I know that this is, uh, this is a story we've talked about, and you, were, uh, you seemed interested in, in getting to this one. So. Yeah, um, I, I really liked it. I, I'll tell you that I didn't think it was, it didn't feel like, like part one of a trilogy or a hexology. It felt like a complete movie, even more so than movies that didn't have a sequel. Mm. <laughs> like, I was, I was surprised at how well everything tied up with a bow at the end. So, like, it, it was, it's, first of all, it is really entertaining. There's a lot of colorful characters. It's got an extremely strong and, and, um, uh, like noticeable unity to it, uh, which again, a lot of the other ones we've watched, like because I'm watching them expecting that three act structure and they have like that five or six act structure, they they kind of they feel stilted or like a little awkward in their pacing. Mm-hmm. I don't feel that so much in this one. It, it does it does the thing where it kind of leaps between time and place in a yeah. way I'm not used to, but the it's it's got a real structure to it that's that's re- makes it really a joy to watch. So yeah, I, I really I greatly enjoyed this movie. Um, I could have used more fighting, but the fighting that we did get had some really cool stuff in it. Like there's a flute battle at the end with evil music, and like you gotta love that kind of stuff. You just don't see that you know in other places. I'm surprised. So, I'm surprised you didn't trouble. find that there was enough fighting in this. I guess it doesn't lean as heavily on the fighting as some of the other movies. And, and there's a lot of room for the characters themselves to kind of get to know each other. And and so it, 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 I guess for a Chang Che movie, it is a little more balanced in terms of the the fight content to the story content. Um, but especially the, you know, the what was that? A lot of times like they would start fighting. Then the camera would pan over to a character who was watching the fight, and they'd just be like, hmm, how interesting. And it would focus on them. And they'd sort of have a conversation while a fight was happening off camera. And I was like, okay, so that's what we're doing with this movie. Yeah, yeah, and, and even a lot of the fight scenes, the stakes are not always necessarily that high. There's a lot of instances in this movie and in the story where uh, rather than have an actual fight, they'll say, okay, let's balance these cups of wine or, uh, you know, <laughs> Uh, you know, you know. Let's not be like commoners and have a duel to the death. You know, in order to determine who gets to marry my daughter, I want you guys to have three contests. The first of which is to, you know, whoever whoever can stay in the tree the longest uh, while fighting and not hitting the ground, uh, you know, wins. The second is I need, I want you to 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 follow the beat to my flute music, and then the third is to recite uh, from memory a page of, uh, from my wife's book that I show you, and. Uh, uh, which is like the Nine Yin Manual, which is a very important MacGuffin in the in the story. But um, this is MacGuffin. That's great. Well, there, there's well, it's a not lot a of that. It does stuff, huh? Like if you if you learn something from the quote unquote MacGuffin, it's no longer a MacGuffin. It did a thing that makes it a plot device. Oh, there's I didn't. Okay, I didn't realize that there were parameters on on. There, on when there something... are parameters to MacGuffin. A MacGuffin can't do anything. Oh, like, okay. I thought yeah, a MacGuffin it's... was just the thing that like, you know. Is sort of driving the plot in some way that's is you know you know sort of like an object that people are after or but I didn't yeah, realize that it, it you're, you're right but like you you have to draw a line because a plot device lets something interesting happen that can create plot a MacGuffin doesn't do that just by existing oh. it makes the plot happen so the Maltese Falcon is a MacGuffin but the and and even like the Ark of the Covenant because all it really did was like end the movie mm-hmm. that, that's a MacGuffin okay. but like like this. I don't know. Like almost everything. Indiana so this this wouldn't good. be a MacGuffin then, because this this is like threaded through the whole story in a number of different ways. It's mm-hmm. it's 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 part of how uh, Huang Yaoshi, the master of Peach Blossom Island's wife, died. 
you know it's it's mm-hmm. it's, it's important to that it's 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 how he uh it, it it's the thing that enables Guo Jing and Huang Rong to get married and mm-hmm. and and it's also an imp- it contains important techniques that are used throughout the movie so i guess it uh, the only thing that makes it not a MacGuffin is that last thing. Because remember, if the manual itself is making all the plot happen and it doesn't fucking do anything, MacGuffin. If it does stuff, not a MacGuffin. Oh, it's, okay, I get you. It's a fine line. <laughs> okay, that's, so, yeah, that's... It might be a MacGuffin within the context of this movie where it just... Because I don't think anyone uses the techniques in it within but, the movie, do they? But, but, what's, but how do you draw a line between the manual doing something and the manual causing something in the plot to happen? I'm, I'm like... Uh, so, for example, if, if if the wife dies because she's reciting the the Nine Yin Manual as she's as, as she's uh, reading it, mm-hmm. is that is that a MacGuffin act or is that a plot device? I think it's more. I think that's a little more MacGuffin. I think it's closer to plot device. Okay. But like a plot device is it, it, the thing about a plot device is that it can basically like open up like a chest full of events and make something happen. Whereas the MacGuffin just kind of sits there and people are like, oh, let's make stuff happen around it. Okay. So there's a kind of a, a blurry line between causality that make that is the distinguishing factor. Or rather, that's how I've come to understand it from my obsession with reading TV tropes. Okay. So, yeah, I, I don't. I, I, I'm, I'm not a big TV tropes reader, so I might. Uh, or, but um, I've heard. I've just TV heard MacGuffin. And... I've heard MacGuffin in conversations mainly with role playing games. Um, mm. But I guess to, to bring it back to the, uh, the yeah, Brave sorry. Archer series, uh, you know, did you have any uh, so so you know the combat character development? There was quite a bit of balance. What did you think of uh, of the of the story in general? And uh, was there anything that you found confusing or perplexing about it? Um, there, there's a really there's a really actually a, a lot of the movies we've been watching do this, and I think this is just an Eastern style, like Chinese style movie making technique. Uh, it feels like they totally forget about something because they they leap so far forward in time mm. or to such a different setting that you're like, oh, I guess we're not doing that now. But then, like a scene or two later, that'll come back. Like yeah. at the, the very beginning of the movie. Uh, and I actually, I want to talk about this one kind of in the stages in which it happens because it is well constructed and it kind of would help structure the conversation. Like at the beginning of the movie, uh, two kids are born and like their parents meet this this wandering Taoist guy and the Jin army are invading uh, uh, China, which it's a historical event. Actually, it's one of the things that Legends of the Wu is based off of is whenever the Jin had just conquered. Yeah, uh, this is China. like as the nor- northern China is being conquered by the Jin. Yeah, it's it's in the process of happening in this movie. But like, uh, the kids like their their parents get like killed by Jin, and then there's like this rivalry thing that happens because the or what are they called the Weird Seven or the Weird the Seven Sixers, Freaks? Like the Seven Freaks. Is that what they're called? The they're also called the Weird name. Seven, but uh, Seven Freaks is the name that I I, I, I the translation I first encountered. So I, I love the Seven Freaks. Like and like, what's the okay? You're gonna have to inform me about like because they're called weird and or freaks. What does that mean culturally when you say that in China? Because I, I don't. When I, I think freaks, I don't I think know. Like I I have a good friend who would know the answer to that and, and remind me, and I'll make a point of getting an answer on that question. And maybe we could even get a little mini episode out of it because I've often wondered that myself. And I don't know. I I, I just assumed it meant something kind of like a weirdo. Um, yeah, because I, because they're all vibe. they're all kind of eccentric, and you know they they are they're, they're uh, and and there's and there's other characters later on that are that sort of mirror this group that are equally strange um, in the in the sequel, um, but I'm I'm not sure what the and 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 I and sometimes what I discover when I when I delve into this stuff is that. Freaks is just something that was used as a translation for some bizarre reason, and it has nothing to do with it. But I also sometimes find out when I delve into these things that oh no, there's a you know, it, it means what it sounds like. So like we just did um the last hurrah for chivalry last week, and uh, the friend that I'm talking about was uh was on the program, and he he said that uh the the name the name of the movie in Chinese is actually just like. Uh, something like chivalrous hero, basically, or great, great, great hero. A lot more generic. Yeah. And there's no hurrah um, in there. But but somehow in the English translation, it became the last hurrah for chivalry. Uh, but in the book, the, in all the translations I've seen, they're usually the seven freaks of Jiangnan. 
and um and I I think it might even be oh wait I got it right here it's it's Jiangnan Chi Guai so I don't know if that's like Guai is in like a ghost type thing like maybe maybe like maybe like monstrosity but well you know we'll we'll get a more knowledgeable person on the program at some point to break that down for us yeah, because I know the Yao Guai means monster, or like the equivalent of the term like monster or goblin. So it, but, it might even be like the seven forest goblins or something well, like that. But the but the trick the tricky thing there is because of the tones, you could oh, have the right. same sound mean like five different things. Do you know what I mean? So I don't know. Yeah. So that's why I, I I've been I've been I've been burned by that so many times that I now <laughs> always go to the people that that know about the language. Um, but 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 either way, they're a really interesting group of characters, and they become the master of one of these children that was born at the start of the movie. And like you yes. said, it advances like eighteen years. Yeah, and it jumps they, up to when they're grown ups. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 it's kind of a cool setup. And, and 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 they really condense it here because in the book, it's a much more. There's a lot more room. This is like I think two or three chapters at least, and maybe just two. But but it's an extended sequence where. Uh, where all the stuff that we see happen in that one location actually occurs over multiple locations, and there's a much more protracted battle between the Taoist and the Seven Freaks, uh, and the it's, battle that's a little curtailed because like they just jump in, they're like, oh, let's fight, and then like two seconds later, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, yeah, everyone. No, in the in the book and in most versions and TV series and stuff, there's this really great fight at an inn, and then they fight at a temple, and and the uh, and, and the and and the Taoist basically says okay we'll, tr we'll you know i'll go get the other kid you train this kid and and in 18 years we'll we'll continue our battle uh you know seeing who who trained them best <clears throat> i apologize my my voice seems to be vanishing um sorry about that, that no sucks. it's okay but uh but um but the other thing that is missed in the book or not in the book in the movie is there's a whole subplot about the mongols that you don't see at all you only see a glimpse of it here, where when 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 they advance eighteen years after the after the the start of the film, uh, Guo Jing is is living in like a Mongolian tent. But they don't really comment on that much in the movie. But in the book, he's actually he's actually under the uh, protection of Genghis Khan, and and Genghis Khan is an important character in the story. Um, so the, and 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 there's also a subplot where Guo Jing is promised to the daughter of Genghis Khan, and so in addition to Guo Jing and Huang Rong have to having to get over the hurdle of getting her father to allow them to get married. After that's done, Guo Jing has to get over the hurdle of he's promised to the Mongolian princess, and he has to get out of that marriage. So there's a lot of stuff that the movie sort of strips away for purposes of keeping things flowing and. You know, they, they wouldn't have been able to tend to all these threads, I think. Um, and so, they, I mean, it's a full movie. So, like, I, and it doesn't feel pared down. I mean, clearly, it, it must be somewhat. Um, I, I might compare it to, like, a, well, Romance of the Three Kingdoms is probably another similar one where, like, when you see a movie of that, of that book, like, they, they have to focus on the battle they want to fight with it. Yeah. They're like, okay, this is just going to be about Cow Cow, and it's just going to be for, like, these three battles, and that's it. Like, um, was, it, was, it, was it a Jackie Chan or Jet Li movie where they did that? Uh, it was, there was a really, really famous uh, version of Romance of the Three Kingdoms that was done fairly recently where that was basically what they did. They're like, no, no, we're just focusing on, like, four characters out of the 800 in that novel. So, Are you thinking of Redcliffe? I think, I, yeah, I think that's what it is. Yeah, I don't think Jet Li or Jackie Chan were in that one though. But I um, who it was? It was someone I recognized by name, and I'm like, well, John, oh. I think John Woo directed it. Um, yeah, I, no, it was an actor. It was one of the actors. They they played Cow Cow, and I I can't remember who it is now. It could have been like I, it's, there's more there's more actors that I would recognize by name. I just can't some of them to mind now. But, but that's a good movie. That's actors. that's a really good movie, by the way. But, um, I need to grab it. <laughs> I, I I picked it up on Blu-ray again actually, and I I I, I need to watch it again because it's been a few years. But uh, but it's a long movie, so I was like, well, I'm gonna wait for the right day because you know I think it's yeah. it, it's like the full version. So I mean it's 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 quite it's quite a quite a long movie. Um, but uh, but 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 yeah, it it it. it, it I th I think overall the movie succeeds in getting a even though like you said they have to do the time skips and the, uh, some of the time skips are in the book some of them are not but 
but it really does get all of the plot beats. And this is the kind of film where this is a popular novel. This is not a minor story in China. So this is something where there's an assumed familiarity with the source material uh, that that the, the that they you know that the audience would have. And so um, you know one of the complaints that that you might sometimes get when people see this film or similar movies is well it's confusing, but it, 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 I'm sorry. I didn't get that so much, but mostly because I, I agree with you that there's there there are some things where I'm like I probably would have got this better if I was Chinese, uh, or if I just was very familiar with like Condor Heroes, like um, like halfway through the movie, right? Uh, the uh, the the uh, what is a Peach Blossom Princess, whatever her name is, Huang finds Roy. a yeah yeah f- finds a new master uh, for well okay so. But by the way, is there an archer in this movie? I didn't see an archer. I want to call. Yes, the main there guy is an archer. The archer person. is Guo Jing. Guo Jing, Guo Jing is the archer. Um, in okay. the in the original Condor Hero story, he shoots. He he, he I think he, he kills um, uh, uh, a hawk with uh, with 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 an arrow in like a really skilled shot. He might even hit two at once. I can't remember the circumstances, but oh, that's rad. But, but he's like a he's like a because he, he's raised by the Mongolians, and so he learns how to use a, a bow. And that's one of his that's one of his great skills. He he accumulates a number of other skills, so he isn't always fighting with arrows. But but he's one he's he's uh, you know it's it's I guess it's kind of not that common like a a, a hero whose whose big skill is is firing a bow in a wuxia story. That's interesting. Anyway, but no, she she goes she finds him a new master, and the way she does this is a hobo wanders up to their camp and she feeds him a chicken, and it's like, will you teach the 18 dragon palms to my boyfriend here and he's like hmm you know who i am okay i will because i'm this great hero that's an introduction and to a western audience like who is this guy but to an eastern audience it's it's like the equivalent would be like oh that's robin hood or like yeah. oh it's lancelot you know who you don't need to introduce him more we know yeah. who that is and that's and that character is hong shi gong he is the leader of beggar sect so he's a he's an important character in the story and he's uh uh, you know, and and I think also part of the thing that she was trying to do there, I, I can't remember in the book what if this was the case or not, but I think if I remember, part of her motivation was helping to prepare Guo Jing to be a suitable husband for her when she when he meets her father. Um, you know, yes, he uses those techniques. Yeah. So so uh, you know she I, I think she was trying to up his martial talent so that the father would be more impressed. Um, but I, yeah, I could be wrong on that. Well, going back to the linear sequence, right? Right after the, right after they take, they take Hua Jing, the the seven freaks do, and uh, they they train him and they jump to him being an adult, and like they're all they're watching him spar and they're all like, oh man, we this up. His kung fu sucks. Let's all right, you you go take him to this abandoned mountain place and keep training him because this is embarrassing. And they do, and they're just jumped by this guy who can crack through skulls with his fingers. Oh yeah, the, oh yeah, oh uh, yeah. Kills Guajing's master, and out of sheer luck, he stabs the dude who goes off to his wife and dies. And I want you to take over everything cool about those two, that pair, because they are really neat. Okay, in the so whole that's movie. Copper Corpse and Iron Corpse. So Copper Corpse yeah. is, uh, I think, Chen Zhuanfeng, and Iron Corpse is Mei Chaofeng. And Mei Chaofeng is one of my favorite characters in the whole story. I think I think she's tremendous, and and I think the woman who played her here is one of the better versions that I've ever seen. She really, she gets the martial arts right, and she also just gets the personality. She, like, just really nails it. Um, but basically, they stole the um, the manual from Huang Yaoshi, who is the master of Peach Blossom Island. And he ended up, like, crippling his, 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 his remaining apprentices. And uh, and that's that's sort of the backstory to all this. And so they're sort of in hiding. And they're, they're trying to use the... Um, uh, nine yin white bone claw technique, I think, and so that's what they're using when they're when they're when they're um, they're when when he's training on those skulls, the sort of soft clay skulls that he's putting his fingers in. That's the bone claw technique that he's using, and and it, and 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 uh, copper corpse. He's one of these guys that's made most of his body invincible except for his navel. So when Goa Jing fights him, he stabs him with the dagger and the navel, and then that that begins the. Uh, uh, the grudge between her and him and the seven freaks, and she ends up killing one of the seven freaks. And then, you know, uh, years later, he has another encounter with her. Uh, but they, but 
when the seven freaks try to get their revenge, they blind her. And so, so she's one of these maimed heroes in the, in, in the story. But even, but despite being blind, she's still a pretty terrifying character. Um, so, so yeah. And, and she also, I think she uses, um, the, the, some kind of bone whip or something or boa whip, uh, in the, uh, in the story. But, uh, she, she's a, the, the, the actress who plays her has an amazing presence. I'd like to point out, like, she's really genuinely like not only in the way she characterizes it, but in the way that everybody reacts whenever she hits the scene, because like she'll wander in and they'll be like, Hey, who is that terrifying woman? Someone will name drop her or she'll like name drop herself. And everyone's like, Oh crap. Yeah, no. Yeah. She, uh, and that's usually when she's depicted, she, 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 she's always depicted with having that kind of a presence. And I think this actress really, really got that down very well. Uh, she probably said, I mean, I don't know of any earlier depictions, so she might have even set the standard unless there was like a TV series that was earlier. Um, but what ends up happening over time is you do see, uh, like if you watch a version of Legend of Condor Heroes, the costuming and the stance and the and the characterization just in sort of the physical presentation of them has all been fairly set. And so usually when you see Mei Chao Fung now, you know right away that it's Mei Chao Fung. Um <laughs> And and also the so name. Helpful. I'm sorry. That's neat and helpful. Like if I see a guy in green leotards, I know that's Robin Hood. Yeah, you know, it's, so simil- it's kind of a similar thing. It's similar to that. Like Gua Jing, you kind of know it's Gua Jing. Um, we should probably talk about Gua Jing and Huang Rong because they're the, the the main characters. And I don't know if you picked up on this, but Gua Jing's not the smartest guy in the world. He's kind of he's a, not the he's not great at anything. It's yeah. wonderful. He's, he's such a moron. <laughs> And everyone even says that. Like he'll he'll act it out. Like he he nails this part, and like people will say that to him. Like, well, you're kind of dumb, but thankfully we don't have to be smart to do this. Because uh, he, I mean, he is a good student. He he learns dutifully. <laughs> he's respectful. He's, he's a good person. He's very simple, and he he he. Uh, and in the story, it's a little more complicated why his abilities aren't progressing and how he gets over it. But but eventually he you know almost just through you know through through effort and and having a good heart he kind of gets to he, he improves like every time he meets a, a big master that wants to train him they teach him because they because he's 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 like a good person basically or he impresses them with his uh, with his you know how respectful he is and so in this we get to see that with um, with him learning from Hong Chi Gong and we also get to see it from him learning from Zhu Batong. The guy on Peach Blossom Island, the, who's a little bit mad uh, when he meets him, that teaches him like the four-fisted fighting style, and uh, and so and also helps prepare him for the uh, the, the the marriage test uh, by having him recite recite the uh, the uh, the manual. Um, and and Huang Rong is almost the opposite of him. Huang Rong is uh, is is really really smart. That's her. That's one of her defining traits. And. Uh, and 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 very not just smart but very quick-witted uh and 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 you know maybe a little bit more rule bending than goa jing um, a little yeah <laughs> yeah i think she's at least a little bit more rule bending I, I really like her uh again they they chose their actors and actresses really well and you get a real kind of Loki trickster vibe out of Huang Rong over the whole movie. Like, because she's introduced as, like, a beggar. Yeah. Like, she's she's stealing stuff. And she's the daughter of an incredibly powerful and influential, like, you know, kung fu god, basically. Um, and, yeah, she's just like, eh, no, nah, F that. I'm going to go be a beggar. I'm going to go steal food. Uh, she she tricks, uh, tricks the fellow. I can't... I didn't write the names down. This Gua Jing? Like What's that? The, the, the hero? Yeah, the hero. I'm just going to call him the hero. Yeah, he's Gua Wah. Jing. Gua Jing. Uh, I'm going to have to write them down just a second. Gua Jing. I'm not going to spell it right. I'm probably not even pronouncing it right, so it's not a big deal. But like, uh, you, 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 over time, these, these names will become familiar to you, I assure you. Um, no, I mean, like... Because, like, I know names like Lu Bu and stuff like that. So, like, it's... Yeah, you're... The, you get familiar with them, yeah. you know. You also get familiar with the uh, the Chinese name conventions, where like they'll give someone like eight different names, and they're yeah. used conceptually by different characters. 
And, like, at first you're just baffled by that. And then, like, after a while you're like, oh, no, it's just his nickname. Oh, no, that's his, that's his childhood name. Oh, no, that's... And, like, you just... They're just, like, second nature after a little while. Yeah, because I think she calls him Jingaga or something like that. Some kind of... Yep. I think, like, Brother Jing or something, so... Um, yeah, everyone has a little pet name. You know, and, like, it's not like... It's not like our culture doesn't do that. I've got a million names, if you think about it that way, because my wife has a name for me, my mom has a name for me, my kids have a name for me, my friends have a name for me. Same thing, you know? And, like, if you add in, like, the complexity of, like, you know, handles online and stuff like that, I must have 30 names. And that's just... That's just not that's my... True. Yeah, there's just that. And then, like, that's even ignoring, like, my name as a as an importance to my family. Like my first name is actually the, uh, the name of my deceased, uh, my father's deceased best friend. Okay. Just so like, yeah, exactly like you do it in like a Chinese Amy convention, you know, uh, I've got a middle name, I've got a last name. So I've got a surname like names are like, but our middle like name, that. I have to say our middle names are pretty meaningless these days. Wouldn't you say like my middle name's Matthew and I don't think I've ever used it for anything. Uh, I don't know. No one even cares. Yeah. Like if I tell them my middle name, they're like, "Your middle name is stupid," and I'm like, "Yeah, let's move on." What is your middle name? Now I have to it. know. What my what? middle name's Tyler. Uh, my mom thought it was a very, a very. There, fancy there are worse stuff. middle names than Tyler for sure. They're totally worse middle yeah. names. Um, <laughs> you know, you could be named Rupert. Rupert would be a pretty bad middle name. Apologies to all the Ruperts in the world, but. Um, but you, uh, you've suffered enough Ruperts of the world. <laughs> But but anyways, uh, the uh, we're, we're getting a little bit short on time, so we only got about twenty minutes. So I want to get into the gaming oh, stuff. But before we do, um, was there anything else about the story that you noticed that you wanted to talk about? One thing. There was one thing that I I couldn't stop noticing. Every fight had a gimmick and a rule. We're yeah. not going to really fight. We're going to play with these cups, like you mentioned. Every fight was like that. Yes, it was great. I think I think if there's a def- if there's an essential quality to to these stories by Lewis Cha, it's the inventiveness, whether it's with the characters or the situations or the little flourishes around the fights. Like, okay, we're gonna we're not gonna have a real fight. You're gonna have to tiptoe across this bridge and 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 be the first to grab that 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 peach on the hill. You know, like <laughs> there's always these these details, and they usually stem very very believably from the characters. So when when Huang Raoshi, when Huang Yaoshi uh, has the three tests for the? He's promised Huang Rong, his daughter, to the to two people: to Guo Jing because Hong Chi Gong asks for it, and to um, to Uyung Ke, the nephew of Uyung Fung, who's one of the great villains in the story. And he he ha- has them undergo these three tests, and all of those tests are a pure reflection of Huang Yaoshi's eccentric scholarly personality. He's he's this you know eccentric flute playing scholar um and so so yeah inventiveness i think is the key is really the key feature of these stories uh and that, and it's that was a cool ultimate battle for that movie by the way it, it was really enjoy, enjoyable it was and what and what i think you don't see in the movies that you see on the page when you read these books is over the course of so they're they're always divided i think into 40 chapters usually like 10 volume 10 chapters per book so usually have like four books for each of the stories in the trilogy, um, is just the endlessly inventive nature of them. You're, you know, just just from chapter to chapter, so many characters being introduced, so many little plot details being introduced. It's just crammed with, with 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 little details that are surprising at every turn. Um, you know, it, 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 I, I again, I can't recommend these enough. Unfortunately, if you're going for Condor Heroes, only the first book of the first trilogy has been officially translated into English, but you can get fan translations online. Um, and again, so because we are running low on time today, uh, <laughs> we, we do need to get into the gaming stuff. And I think there's a lot of gaming material here. Um, did, did, I have a list of things, but did anything leap out at you uh, while you were watching it? If not, I, I'm happy to go into mine. Oh man, um, lots and lots of cool goons. That was was probably the biggest thing where I was like, "This is really gameable." There's lots of mini bosses. There's lots of sub bosses. Lots of colorful bad guy characters. So like, really cool stuff right there. Um, also, there's a scene uh, where they're lost in this Taoist peach garden and they can't get out of it because yeah. it's like this magical architecture. That for me, like, I really liked that. I like dungeons that are unusual in that yeah. way. 
Yeah. Uh, so I, I would I want to put that in a game. Now. And I and I would even comment in in this movie did a particularly good job of that because I've seen that in a bunch of different series and it's always very hit or miss how they represent that because it's described oddly in the book. It's an odd concept and visually expressing that on screen is difficult. I think and they did a very yeah. good job here. Um, it's one of those things that if you're in a peach garden, it's easy to get lost a bit in them, but like. Yeah, seeing it, you're like, why are they lost? It's like you got to be there, man. Trust me, it's really disorienting. Well, and that's a cool. That's a that's an that's an area where knowledge of inf- of of cultural relevant cultural information on the part of the character could be important. Where like if you know mm. about the uh, you know the 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 um uh what is it, the the the, the bagua, then you would you would be able to um navigate it more easily than somebody who doesn't. But uh. But the, another thing that I, 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 I noticed about it watching it this time, and this is something I've kind of always... I've, I've always used this story and, and, and its sequels as a model for how characters ought to learn techniques and abilities in a wuxia campaign. Um, so, like you were commenting on how they won over Hong Qigong by, by offering him food and all that. I like this idea. Number one of happy coincidences, like having like maybe a table um, where you might have great masters that there's a chance of characters encountering just just through you know random chance and circumstance. Um, but also uh, having uh, you know when players do encounter those kinds of figures, having it be very much a chemistry thing. Like you know if, uh, in this case, Guo Jing and Huang Qigong are a good pairing. Hong Qigong is going to naturally want to teach Guo Jing uh, his abilities if if they do enough to, to impress him. But, you know, he's probably not going to learn anything from Wu Young Feng. Do you know what I mean? Uh, so I, I think that... Uh, I think just sort of knowing where the... Te- and again, this is going to be very dependent on, on the system you're using because I'm largely going by Ogre Gate where you have discrete martial arts techniques. But knowing where the techniques reside in your setting, so whether it's in manuals like the uh, the Nine Yin Manual, which we see in the movie, or whether it's in the characters, whether it's in Hong Chi Gong or Huang Yaoshi, and 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 turning those moments into more than just you know more than just a conversation where a person asks for a technique, where there's like a challenge and there's a you know something interesting going on. I've, I, this is this is sort of like if I if I had to give my ideal of how that stuff plays out in a campaign, the Condor Heroes trilogy really nails it for me. Yeah, and I I concur. I concur. I concur. Listen to me. I concur. Like, and I found that in almost every kung fu system, either that I've encountered or now the one that I'm designing, like that's a really important thing. Knowing where the techniques reside, like you said, that's a beautiful way of putting that. Because in a game where you fail to do that. Like, you lose, you just basically just drop this extremely important and game-defining element to no game. Yeah. Uh, like, I I don't want to go and, and rip into Exalted, but I will complain about it in this very limited sense that your techniques aren't something you go out and find. You just kind of learn them sometimes. And that, that really drops one of the more interesting aspects of the setting, which is going and finding a master. However... They do it in one circumstance, which is peculiar but fascinating. Uh, one of the martial arts types, the Sidereals, or like the Star Exalted, they have to treat martial arts that way. They have to find a master and then learn them from that master. So in that one one place, Exalted is like, oh, you know what? We're going to do it right. Mm-hmm. Peculiar. Uh, but yeah, Legends of the Wulin, you had to find techniques by enmeshing yourself with whoever knew them, yep. which could get really complicated. Uh, Weapons of the Gods was similar. Uh, Legends of Ogre Gate. I'm I'm baking that right into my game. So like, yeah, I, I love that. I love that because it gets player it gives players a reason to go and invest in the setting and interact with the characters. And like, hey, that weird beggar we met. Let's go and talk to him again. He seems like he might be that legendary beggar king, and yeah. he knows the dog beating stick technique or whatever. No, and, and in fact, I I kind of did a spin on this where because Hong Chi Gong's thing is obviously food. So I had a um. <laughs> Uh, uh, a very uh, uh, you know eccentric beggar chief in one of my campaigns, and and the spin on it was that you know he was he was fond of food, but he was fond of 
like rotten fermented food and so the characters had to had to find a way to um uh to uh the characters had to find a way to um uh imp- to, to to number one imp- impress him with their own culinary skill but also they had to be able to stomach the cuisine that he was eating um, and so, and so, one of the characters succeed. You know, the the beggar character was the one who who I think managed to to to, to consume the rancid food and impress the beggar chief sufficiently that they became friends. Um, so yeah, stuff. Yeah, so, but but that but that was directly inspired by Hong Chi Gong. Do you know what I mean? Like that that was uh, that, that that you know it, it, you know and you see you see even more of it when you get into the Return of Condor Hero story, the second one, which is which is actually my favorite. Um, there Ooh, you see. I'm sorry. It's coming up next. We well, well, no, 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 no. So, Return of Condor Heroes is is a separate story. It's the second part of the second oh, trilogy. Okay. So, what we're seeing is the first story. So, we're going to go from episodes one through three, and if we choose to, we could continue with Brave Archer and his mate, and then follow that up with Little Dragon Maiden, I believe, and we might Oof. get the uh, <laughs> uh, we might get much of the Return of Condor Heroes story, but. I think honestly, the best way to encounter Return of Condor Heroes is to either read it or watch a series because it. it I don't think it's been. Brave Archer does a good job of getting the first story down, um, but I don't feel like the um, uh, Brave Archer is made as the best introduction to Return of Condor Heroes. Um, but uh, and and uh, and also there's uh, well we'll get into that when we get when we get that far, but um, <laughs> but. Sorry, I have, a, I have a fly assailing me here, so I'm a little bit distracted. Um, but but yeah, so with techniques, I think I think that's uh, uh, that's an important thing. I also think another thing that this story does is it gets a really good mix of allies and villains. And I find that a lot of like my own natural inclination as a GM was always to go too far in one direction or the other. Too many villains, too many allies. Um, yeah. And, and having a, I've, I've discovered over time and largely with the help of thinking about stories like this is having a good mix of both is really important. You know, always having that potential when they first meet somebody. Is this somebody who's going to be a, an ally in the future or is this somebody who's going to be an enemy in the future? And obviously there are people who don't fit into either category, but that, you know, I, I, I think I think that that makes for uh, a much more interesting campaign in the long run. If you uh, if you if you let the people who are who are useful be truly useful and, and helpful to them and you let the people who are villainous be truly villainous and challenging to them, that that really can uh, uh, intensify a campaign more and also get the you know, the players appreciate having helpful allies. Do you know what I mean? Like they. Uh, it's that's the thing that's really easy to overlook. Somebody who's who's functionally useful to the party and willing to lend them a hand. Yeah, you gotta you gotta be careful with with the allies. Uh, I tend to Monty Hall my campaigns, which is where you way over reward the players. So I'm really cautious with allies because I have a tendency to be like, and then another ninth level wizard swears to join you. Oh, when I... you right, and then the king of the realm is like, you would be my knights, you know, and they just get they they get. Like all these extra like titles and superheroes well, tooling around with them, and it's like uh, I might have overstepped my bounds here. Well, <laughs> I, I have sort of a naturalistic way of managing that. Like if um if they, like say the players accumulate a retinue over time, I don't want to slow down combat by rolling for every character necessarily the way I would roll for like you know normal monsters and NPCs. And if they have a retinue of heroes with them, what I usually do is I usually just reduce them to like dice pools based on their level and and whoever they're going up against it'll be the same thing so if i have if they have a hero who's chi rank seven going up against a chi rank three it'll be 3d10 against 7d10 and 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 in any given battle you know that might result in one of their allies dying you know what i mean so you know that over time you know i i think natural uh natural mortality rates will kick in um (laughs) if they're if they're if they're really drawing heavily on these people and that'll kick in whether you're using that simplified method or rolling for everybody. The simplified method is just because I want to cut down on time. But if I were, you know, you rolling for all the characters, the players, yeah. yeah. If I were rolling for all the characters, there'd probably actually be more character death because I'd be using specific techniques, and the lethality might actually go up a little bit. Um, mm. But uh, but yeah, so you know, that's uh, obviously you have to be careful. But I think um, I don't know. I, I 
as a GM, I tend to be maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit stingy is maybe my <laughs> my natural inclination. So I have to remind myself to 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 be more generous with the allies and the and people that are functionally useful to them. Um, All right, so that's a good question. What's what's the ideal ratio of allies and reward? Like, could could we? Talk about that way in a, in a way that we could actually communicate that to a new GM. Like, okay, okay, you want you want to, to look kind of like this. I'm, Do we have any good I'm, examples? I'm very reluctant to quantify anything for the simple <laughs> reason that anytime games quantify that kind of thing, it becomes this ball and chain that you're latched to. Do you know what I mean? Like the challenge rating stuff. Yeah, and so oh. I'm, yeah, the challenge rating stuff is is sort of my go-to example for that, where that really just killed a lot of the fun of the game for me, even though it came from like a really functional, useful thing. A GM does need to be able to know like how challenging is this going to be for a party? How and dangerous is the dragon? But, oh. but I think you can go too far. So, so my advice wouldn't be to say, okay, we need the perfect ratio and it must always be at that ratio. It would be, you know, just strive for a general feel of balance in your approach. If you, if, if you're noticing that you've just been having too many villains lately, maybe throw in some more, you know, friendly characters. I, I what what I would try to do is just look when whenever you have running a campaign, and this is a just a general principle. Take note of what some of your ex, what are your excesses, and where is there a poverty of 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 of, of X, and then you know decide whether you need to adjust things. That that's how I would do it. Um, I think I think that's probably the best advice is tying it into what do you seeing happen at the table. Yeah. The players are over relying on allies. Maybe crank up the villains a little bit. If they seem like they're really overwhelmed and having trouble and struggling. That's more allies. Yeah, because you you want to be very careful because if you're if you're constantly focused on okay, I've got to have a thirty to seventy uh, percent ratio. You know, like like if it's got to be like, you know what I mean? If it's if it's got to be like a. Um, if if you're constantly thinking of the proportions, and and then you, and and it's a moment in your campaign where that's not even a consideration because the characters are focused on getting this object from this guy or something. Yeah, you're, you're going to be diverting your focus yeah. in a bad way. Yeah, because uh, they're not going to notice it unless it's a moment of the campaign where they're going to notice it anyways. So. Yes, and you do want to have it to, like not always perfectly balanced. You want moments of being overwhelmed, moments of being over rewarded. It should yeah. even out overall, not within every moment. Yeah, if you, yeah, I mean, because you can run into the four E problem of parity across all time, and then that, you know, yeah. that I mean, and, and that's a that's a simplification. I'm not trying to open up the chest of the four E debate, but like, yeah, let's, you, let's not. <laughs> but but you know what I'm saying? You, that idea, no, that idea of parity can be taken to an extreme, and and I think, um, and that idea of balance can be taken to an extreme. So I think you you need you need like rough edges in a game. You need, you need, um, you, you know, you, you need, you, so, so I'm always sort of a from the hip kind of person. I just feel like, okay, you get a handle on this stuff and as things come, you sort of notice, you know, and, and, and I mean, these are sort of unavoidable, inescapable things. If you're running a game, if you have a bad session, you know, do you know what I mean? You, you know, bad yeah. sessions become pretty clear. Uh, and, and, yeah, and your plans will let you know. Yeah. And if, and if, and if you do, and if you don't know, um, the just for people who aren't familiar with the social uh, rituals involved, if people suddenly can't make it to your games and have excuses, uh, you know that's a sign. Um, so and the, and and again, you know, so so I think I think that you know the one of the biggest skills of being a GM is knowing when you've had some bad sessions and knowing how to uh, adjust for that. And that can happen even if you're a great GM and you've just been you know, spoiled by the fact that you've had these players that are, uh, that fit well with your play style for so long. And then you shift to another group, say, and you know, you're not as you, all of your techniques are not working, you know? So, um, so it's sort of incumbent on you to, to, to read the room as best you can in every session. Um, we have that in common with uh, comedians where like, if you play for in front of the wrong audience with the wrong material, oops, yeah, no, I, I again, I do think stand-up comedy is a good, a good, um, is a good sort of uh, comparison yeah. for that reason. I mean, obviously, there are some massive differences too. You know, you can't, you know, there are certain things stand-up comedians do that a GM should never do. But yeah, like I get way more laughs than most stand-up comedians in my games. 
<laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Well, and 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 humor is a touchy subject at the table. I I like humor, but some people are um, uh, uh, some people don't like when people break characters for a joke purpose. I I, I think it's sort of natural to do that. Yeah, um, one of those little lines where, like, again, you, you and you, like, you sometimes you don't even know. Like, convention running is nightmarish for that reason. Where like you'll find a group that is just woefully unsuited to your sense of humor or when you break character or how you do it, and like. Like even if you're a great GM, you have years of experience. You'll just be in front of these stone-faced, humorless people who are just like, "I don't understand. What? Why aren't you in character right now?" And you're just like, "Oh, oops. Oh man. Okay." And you've got to well, find yourself like, adjusting on the fly to their well, expectations. So, I mean, I want to get into the topic of romance in games next, but before oh, yeah, we do that, I, I do want, I do want to just comment on that. I think for me, the you know, like people will do this thing where that you know everybody's talking in character, and then suddenly something funny happens, and a person makes a joke out of character. I think that's mm-hmm. fine because I think that adds to group cohesion, and it's so quick. Um, yeah. And also, every yeah, people yeah. like laughing. Smart. Laughing's fun. So I don't. I don't. I, I think. I think it's good. I, I do realize that there's there does seem to be this line where some people are fine with it, some people are totally not. Uh, you know. But I'm 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 happy to have humor in my games. But on the topic of romance, because this is a also a romance story, there is a you know a love story between Guo Jing and Huang Rong, um, and romance is obviously a tricky thing to, 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 to work into a game. It can largely depend on the players involved. It can depend on uh, you know what people's comfort levels are. But I think this movie offers a pretty good example of how to do it in a way that isn't awkward for everybody. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I noticed that in the game in the in the movie like. This is the best romance I've seen, maybe in any movie, where like it's not, it's not. They don't expect you as the audience to get super emotionally into the romance, yeah. but like you wind up naturally doing that just because you really wind up liking the characters and their chemistry together. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. like just tell me about it. And, and there's not, I mean, and there's not a lot of physical components to it, so that's you know that's and that's obviously something could, that could you know again depending on the group, but that could be sort of one of the awkward things involved and there's not a lot i mean there are a few moments where when you know like her big thing is the reason she likes him so much is when she was dressed as a beggar he still treated her nicely and Mm. presumably she's been doing this for a long time and people have not been treating her well whenever she's dressed as a beggar but then when she's dressed as a woman they're always treat her you know you know exceptionally well and so she she's drawn to him because he treats her well regardless and 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 it's an emotional scene, but it's not one. It 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 doesn't seem as uh, I don't know. It just didn't seem quite as uh, sappy uh, to me as as yeah. you know as my, sort of your my grandfather uh, would always use the term Twitter pated from Bambi whenever he would see a thing like that. Like that character is Twitter pated. What does Twitter pated mean? All right, all right. So I don't know if you ever seen Bambi, but when I was a kid, when I was a kid, right. And, like, Twitterpated was basically, like, this kind of puppy love infatuation version of, like, falling in love with someone. Okay. And so my grandfather latched onto that for his entire life. I heard Twitterpated until, like, he died. Okay. So, like, uh, at least a good way of characterizing it. Because it's, it's almost like mocking that sort of, like, gooey, sappy romance stuff that you see in, in media a lot. Yeah, this, this is more like, these guys are almost a little bit more like a, um, like a, a great duo. Do you know what I mean? Like they're just a, yeah. they're just like a really perfect team together, and and so yeah. a lot of it is even just you know, and that's one of the, one of the one of the cool things about the wuxia genre. You don't have to have like again, every campaign is different, but you don't necessarily have to have those romantic moments between the characters. A lot of that stuff can be expressed in the middle of a fight, where mm. characters are protecting each other. And do you know what I mean? Like, there, there's a lot of room for that stuff to kind of be more apparent in the in the action sequences, where it maybe is more comfortable, anyways, for folks. So, um, but I, I mean, I'm a big proponent of of if you can have romance in the game because I think number one, it's an important feature of the genre. But number two, uh, normal people get married and have kids and you know all these things and have romantic <laughs> attachments. Yes. And so I, I just think you know if your characters aren't doing that. You know, it's you're missing out on a whole area of of, of adventure potential, of of motivation to drive. You know, it's very interesting to watch characters go from being sort of the wandering murder hobo to like a responsible father who's caring for his kids or something. You know, I mean, there's a uh, I've I've seen that happen in mm-hmm. campaigns, and and it and it and it always adds a you know um, longevity to the to the to the 
to how much fuel the campaign has. So, uh, so I, I, I'd say, you know, try to do it in a way that your group is comfortable with though. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a fine, it's a fine walk for sure. Um, but, but again, I think, I think that this is a very good example. Definitely. If you're looking for this sort of thing in a campaign, brave archer is, is something to check out. Um, Another thing is the martial contests, which we've talked about. Um, mm. Not necessarily, not every, not every fight has to be deadly. You can have a, um, a, a match between characters where their attacks are directed at something else, so that they, so that, so that rather than hurting each other, they're just trying to achieve a goal, and you know, th and that can get around. Uh, you know, if you're if you're in a world where everybody is kung fu fighting, it's you know easy for people to die. And so, if you want to get around that, sometimes you know, a great master might go lenient on a party and just say, okay, instead of having a duel, let's see who can push that rock. You know, whoever can push that rock in one shove wins the contest. You know, that, that, yeah, there, there was a lot of that in this movie. And like, I I like uh, fighting for stakes instead of just we're gonna kill these guys. I think like. Um, you can get into a rut whenever it's open door kill goblins with yeah. every combat. Like sometimes you want it to be like you open the door at the same time as the goblins and you both see the idol you came here for. And so it's more important to rush to get it before the room collapses. You know, you gotta have a little more uh, variety in the goal of your conflict, whatever it is. And I think contests are a good way to achieve that with, especially in genre. Like if you happen to be doing like a Wusha game, I mean, like, contests are, like, all the time in Wuxia. So, but, I mean, reasonably, you can probably do that in any game. I mean, like, even in a, in a more, uh, like, traditional, like, Western RPG thing, if you if you happen to come across Lancelot, maybe he's, like, super not interested in killing you because he's a good guy and you're a good guy, but he still wants to test your metal. You could spar with him or have, like, a race or something, you know? Uh, the archery contest from Robin Hood's a great example of a non-lethal contest that was really high stakes and interesting. I think any setting where there's a some kind of chivalry in play. Like, you know, in Wuxia, yeah. you know, it varies because sometimes you have heroes who sort of deliberately violate certain aspects of the uh, cultural norms. But, but clearly those things are being played to in this story where characters will often do something like before they have a contest they'll set terms like okay if i win you have to marry me and if you win i'll let you go through this hallway or you know there there, there are things like that and 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 there's i call it sort of the gambler effect the people one of the things i like about role playing games and rolling dice is is sort of the the thrill of uh of risk and reward and so when you set stakes like that if you you know it's it's one thing if it's always just death and and death is certainly a big risk but to also have other things on the line like if you've promised somebody okay I'm going to do this really this really hard thing that I don't want to do or give up this thing that I don't want to give up if I lose that makes the contest very interesting and I've had players do that and it's been it's it's always exciting because then you you know you don't know where the campaign's going to go after after that fight until until you know who wins. Oh yeah, and what a, if you find yourself having a player who does things like that? What a wonderful demonstration of their investment in the game. You know, they're they're buying into it and doing things like that. It's it's a rare player I find that that even thinks they can do things like that. But when you find them, man, treasure that player because they're adding something really fun to your campaign. Yeah, no, I, 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 I would agree. And you can also encourage it by having the NPCs, you know, make offers of that nature, too. Um, mm. You know, that's... And again, it, all of this stuff is going to depend on how inventive you feel in the moment. Some nights you might not have it. But when you do, you know, it can be, it can be useful. And, always, and again, the more of these kinds of movies and books you read and watch, I think the more it just sort of is naturally baked into the back of your brain. Where you yeah. you kind of you kind of pull it out like 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 even like even now like when I like when I run a session some of my sessions are great some of them not so great depends on how my mood but even in like my most low energy sessions I find I'm always able to draw on you know all of the movies and books that I've seen for you know inspiration um, yeah, that, that's good advice in general if you want to be a GM 
go and read some cool stuff. Like yeah. go to that appendix in and just start going through it because it it naturally enriches your imagination with the imaginations of all the people that create the things that inspire the game you're playing. It's really yeah. good, really good advice. And 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 I would say if you are intending to do a wuxia campaign. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of making wuxia accessible, and so I don't think people have to suddenly master the genre before they run it. But oh, if I you, don't. I but, don't have anything mastery of it, and I'm going to make some wuxia, so, yeah, I mean, just have some familiarity. But I will say this. This is one of the defining stories in the genre. So if you are interested in learning about the genre to help you with your campaigns, this is a story to become familiar with. And you can do it in a number of ways. You can you can just go to the Wikipedia page and learn about it if you want. That'll give you the basic bare bones information. Um, but I would encourage people to read the story first. The story is great. There's It's a trilogy, and, the tr- and, and there are three books, and each book has 40 chapters, and they're divided into four volumes each. So, um, you know, it depends on the translation you get. But the translations or fan translations are available widely online, and... Like I said, there's even an official translation of the first book. Uh, the stories are wonderful to read. And one of the cool things is because they make TV series for these stories all the time, if you if you want something to kind of help give you fuel to read through the story, like say you're you're getting a little confused by some of the character names or whatever, try reading the stories while watching one of the television series because the television series are also usually divided into about 40 episodes. So there's usually a rough approximation of one episode or two episodes to a chapter. So that can be really handy both to kind of give you the fuel but also to help you remember who's who because you'll have visual image in your head of who's who. Um, Yeah, as you pointed out, their visuals are pretty set, which makes that a lot easier for recognition purposes. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I would say... Um, you can you can start with any of them. You can start with Return of Condor Heroes, or you can start with Heaven Sword, Dragon Saber, or Legends of Condor Heroes. But if you want to do it in order, which is probably advisable, go with Legend of Condor Heroes, sometimes called Eagle Shooting Heroes, then Return of Condor Heroes, then Heaven Sword, Dragon Saber. And and I promise you, each one is they're distinct enough that they're that they're sort of individual and interesting on their own. Um, and everybody always seems to have their favorite one, but they they all but each of them kind of offers something that the other one doesn't. So uh, I, 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 I I mean and 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 other Lewis Cha stories are also worth reading. Other authors are also worth reading, like Gu Long. But um, but I think this is a really important one. So I would say you definitely want to probably start with a uh, with a uh, with Legend of Condor Heroes if you if you're just getting into the genre and uh, and you want some background information because I can promise you you're going to see a lot of references to to the Condor Heroes story if you watch a lot of Wuxia movies and it's just handy to know what they're talking about um, so so yeah so I don't know is there anything else you wanted to add before we uh, before we head out we've been go- we actually got about an hour so we didn't do too bad today cool um, now I feel like uh, I might be a little out of my depth with the expertise when it comes to the Legend of Condor Hero, so I think I'm pretty satisfied with where we left it. Well, we'll try. The, the, we, we by the end by the end of this, you will be an expert in Condor Heroes. I I, I can assure you. Um, yeah, it, 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 it there's something there's something deep about this story. There's something real like at a very basic level it resonates. I I feel like when I first watched Return of Condor Heroes. I had the same feeling I had when I first watched Star Wars. It's that kind of resonance. And I think part of it might be because I think some of this stuff might have actually trickled into Star Wars through uh, very circuitous uh, routes. But, um, but also, I think, I think it just touches on some, some really fundamental stuff. Um, and so, so I, you know, especially Return of Condor Heroes, because, again, spoilers... Uh, I'm going to spoil a big plot detail, so stop listening if you don't want to have that spoiled. Um, but Return of Condor Heroes, the main character, loses his arm midway through the story. So there's a, there's a really easy parallel to draw there um, between you know, that. And, and also, the, the hero of the second story is the son of the villain of the first story. So you know, there, there's that, too. Pretty clear parallels there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah so so uh, so we'll let you go and uh, again the the name of the program is is Wushu Workshop we're, we what do we do these like every two weeks or so is that our rough schedule that we've been on our schedule it's somewhere yeah. in there 
Yeah, every two to three weeks, I'd say we do. And, uh, you know, as always, feel free to send us questions and comments. We'll try to incorporate them into the program. Um, and, uh, you know, both of us uh, design games. I design Wandering Heroes of Ogre Gate. And you have a couple, you have a new game you're working on right now. So why don't you, you know, yeah, plug yeah. that? Uh, well, I, I'm a member of the Five Emperors, and we do, we're do we doing Tian Chang, which is a, a line of different kind of, like, super-powered kung fu games. Right now, I'm working on Lone Wolf Fist, which is like the post-apocalyptic slash sort of Fist of the North Star one. Uh, that's 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 what I'm doing right now. And and can you go into because I know that I, I was watching a thread where you were talking about it and yeah, yeah. Uh, a, any other details that you want to share about it? Oh man, um, I could literally talk about it for another hour, Brendan. You're you're opening up a, a can well. Let's of let's, let's just stick it to about two minutes. Let's let's okay let's okay a, a two um, minute version. Okay, well, it's if you like early '90s, like pulpy kind of anime, um, or, or even like the stuff that's kind of inspired by that, like Katsuya Tarada's Monkey uh, uh, Akira uh, by Katsuhiro Otomo, I think does that. Uh, Dragon Ball Z, um, which is a little more zany, but also an inspiration for the game. Fist of the North Star, Vampire Hunter D, uh, Ninja Scroll, which we talked about. Like, any of that stuff, that's the stuff that inspires this game. So it's it's got a certain kind of appealing grind to it, but it's still really powerful martial or magical heroes going through uh, post-apocalyptic wasteland. Uh, and that's that's just this product. Like, hopefully with the, with the next moment, if we finally get that through layout, which oof, has been kind of difficult, once we get that one through layout, though, you'll be able to go even further into the stars and do that kind of interplanetary crack planets and half stuff from Asherah's Wrath or Dragon Ball Super and that sort of thing. So mine, mine's a touch more, touch higher power level than I think that Wandering Heroes is. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I'm doing with it. Uh, I guess I could talk about this game. Yeah, and I just gotta say, there's some really interesting stuff in there. I've seen a lot of it. Is, is it available in print yet by any chance or is it not available in print yet? No, I'm, I'm still... Like, there's a document available. There's the really super early playtest I called the iBleed playtest, and I'm working on making a proper playtest for it. Mm-hmm. I hope whenever I do that to make it available on print-on-demand, just so if you get people want to like run at their table, they can just order it from DriveThruRPG, get the print-on-demand at rock-cheap prices, at like, even cheap and accessible, and just, just run it that way. And then, yes, whenever I uh, actually get like the proper art and layout done with it, it's going to be hopefully print-on-demand for a hardback. But, so, but yeah, and, and I have to, I have to, I have to say, like, I, I'm very impressed with what I've seen, and the design is very well. Like, there's a lot of forethought into this stuff that you can clearly, like, is a very thought out system. Um, in fact, I was running a game the other day, and uh, we came upon a moment where one of the players said, "It sounds like a montage moment is is called like," and I never do. <laughs> I'm not a montage guy in my campaigns, but I remember you had the montage uh, mechanic. And, yep. and I, an and I was like, oh, I wish I had, like, I, like, I, I wish I had memorized that <laughs> section. Cause I really would like to try it out. And just, but I didn't feel, I didn't feel like I had a handle on it well enough to, 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 to pull off in the moment. Cause it was like the very last session of a campaign. Um, and I didn't want to bungle everything, but, um, but so I want to talk about montage next time. Remind me, uh, um, I'll earmark that. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote a whole section on how to do it, so I'm pretty familiar with it now. And it's it's like it's really not like thank you for t- calling it innovative and really useful, but like really it's just a codifying of something that I think everyone already pretty much does when they run games. Just let's skip time forward ahead and have that happen. But, they, but that's it, a tricky thing. The the, the <clears throat> ins and outs of skipping time can be very tricky in in the, in mm-hmm. the moment of a game. So I thought it was interesting. Um, and and I, and again, I you know we are we are running out of time, so I'm gonna we're gonna have to end it fairly soon but but i think uh i think next next time i'd like to talk about that because i i have some honest questions that i want to ask about it in terms of making it work at the table and it's not you know it's it's a technique you're familiar with that i'm not particularly familiar with so i would uh you know uh, i would i would like to see how to do that smoothly in a way that uh is gonna sort of you know work with what my end goals were for that session um but uh but yeah so so again uh we'll be back on I guess in about two or three weeks. Well, I guess we're going to be doing Brave Archer too, right? Because we're going to do yeah, uh, got to do the whole trilogy yeah. at least. So we're going to do so Brave Archer one, two, and three, and 
I, I, I don't know. I think, I think, um, I think next episode we should also talk about the fact that it is a trilogy. How that would, you know, that's obviously a little bit unusual. So we can, we can get into that too. Um, and tomorrow, I believe we're doing the Chinatown Kid on Wuxia Weekend. Uh, so it's 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 Alexander Fusheng month. So this actually worked out really well because Brave Archer stars Alexander Fusheng, and uh, and so you know we're, we're starting our our first movie tomorrow with him, and I think we're going to end the month with eight diagram pole fighters. So we have a um, a, go, a good selection of films to talk about this month. And uh, stay tuned, true believers. Yep. And uh, all right. So until next time, we'll talk to you later.